The following is a breakout session from the 2014 Acts 29 conference in Dallas. Given the interactive nature of breakouts and Q&A, there may be extended periods of silence. All right, good afternoon, good afternoon. Are y'all ready for our afternoon sessions? Do you have a good Tex-Mex? Anybody have good Tex-Mex? Just me? That's, a, that's too bad. Sorry. The, well, let, let me, let's jump right into the session because I think this is going to be just another another rich session. Uh, just talking with Bruce, letting him know you guys are incredibly, incredibly sharp. Great question. So we're going we're gonna to leave some time at the end for you to press into Bruce and ask him a lot of questions. So start writing those down. And, but let me introduce Bruce Wesley to you, pastor of Clear Creek Community Acts 29 board member, just to, when he came into the network, we went way up as a network. And so, um, and so please open your hearts and minds to Bruce. Thank you. That's a kind introduction. Thank you. All right. You guys already had a financial session. Is that right? Have you already had one? No? I'm the first? Okay. Well, let me give you a little distinction for this session. This session is really about... Uh, Financial responsibility from the boardroom. This is not a focus from the stage, how you can necessarily increase giving, that kind of stuff. Just want to see if anybody's going to run for the door once I tell you that. Um, there are some great sessions, though, that I, I've heard uh, already. You know, if you listen to Brian Howard and uh, Harvey Turner, six strategies for increasing giving in your church. Phenomenal good stuff. I'm going to take it home. Uh, some of those things I'll be, be applying at Clear Creek Community Church. Uh, this particular session, though, is focused on more of the behind the scenes, you know, how do we operate in the church, how do we help people budget, how do we handle money in general, that kind of thing. So, just so you know where we're, we're headed. Uh, let me introduce myself a little bit by telling you about Clear Creek Community Church. Uh, we started on Reformation Sunday in 1993, and so we're a 21-year-old church. Uh, we are a church of multiple campuses, and I have, we have vision to start more campuses, but currently we're in seven services at three campus and average 5,000 people on the weekends. We have an annual budget of 6.7 in the coming year, $7.1 million, and we have net assets of $22,800,000. I only tell you those things to give you a little bit of perspective because I wouldn't anticipate that you're going to deal with you know, necessarily the same financial issues that we deal with. Uh, at this time, but I will say that uh, what I'm going to share with you in terms of our budgeting process, uh, we have used the same budgeting process uh, since we were a church of probably 400 people. So it, in terms of the actual you know, documentation that we use, that we send out to all of our ministry leaders and so on, it's the same stuff. So I really think this is very scalable in that regard. Okay? Um, if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the, help me, the mysteries of God. Okay, let's try that again. The mysteries of God. Um, so this, this passage is about how we are stewards of really the gospel, this mystery of God's transforming grace in the lives of people and what he's done for us. 
But then in the next verse, he gives us a general principle for stewardship. Because we steward more than just the gospel, right? We steward a lot of different things. They all belong to God. God gives them to us. We manage them for his glory. And so it says, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. Trustworthy. And so everything I'm going to share with you really is, is born out of the idea that God would have us be trustworthy with all that he entrusts to us. And money is not only a big issue to God, it is a big issue to everybody in your church. Uh, the way we handle it, the way we use it, the way we report about it, all of that has to do with whether or not they're going to feel free to give generously uh, to a church that you and others like you are overseeing. Okay, So I want to start by talking about some of the financial responsibility values that we have uh, at Clear Creek Community Church. And by the way, you should know, um, I'm sharing with you our experience. I'm not telling you how you ought to do things. Okay, we're all different, but I can only share with you kind of where we've landed on some of our own commitments. And so please hear the spirit of that. Um, first of all, trust is the value that we run on. I'm telling you at Clear Creek Community Church, we have this conversation all the time. Will this pass the red face test? Will we stand up in front of God's people and tell them absolutely everything with no spin whatsoever about this money and it build trust in them that we are after God's heart and his mission in the world? So trust is the commodity of leadership. It is what we run on. So the way we talk about that is we say that uh, generosity toward the church runs on the rails of trust laid on the tracks of transparency and physical responsibility. And so trust then is uh, built and maintained through very clear, concise, and constant communication on financial issues. It's a big deal. We'll be coming back to that. The second thing is stewardship. Uh, one of our four values literally is relentless stewardship. So it's not ours, it's God's. And so we're going to steward it in a way that every dollar we spend, we can stand before Jesus for that dollar. And so what that means is that on one hand, we need to be senior pastors in the room. We need to not put this off on those financial people so we can blame them that they're so penny-pinching and everything. We need to be at the same time the most generous people who know how to splurge to celebrate and glorify God. Okay, We need to break the vial of pure nard and worship Jesus with it. But we also need to know how to pinch every penny so that people know that if we spent some money, we meant to. It was not accidental. That's a stewardship issue. And so another value for us is mission. What we would say is then we align all of our spending to mission, and we don't let any spending redirect our mission. So what that means is, obviously, sometimes people have a lot of money, and they may want to give you some money, but they may have some strings attached to that money, and that money is intended to redirect your mission. And, uh, you know, numerous times, I'm not exaggerating, we've said to people, we can't receive that check. Because you're giving that check for something that we're not committed to. And we're not going to spin it and make it sound like we can you know, receive this check and then spend it on whatever we want to. If uh, they want us to build a skate park for teenagers and that's not part of our vision, guess what? We're not taking that money. Because we're not going to let somebody giving us money redirect our mission as a church. And then next, uh, collaboration is a key value for us. Uh, one of our sayings is this. We, we have no unilateral decision-making. If you make a unilateral decision, it's a bad decision. 
I can't tell you how many times we say that to people on our staff. Any unilateral decision is a bad decision. Why is that? Because we're disciple makers. And so when God gives us money, we get to surround ourselves with people and show them how and why we use that money. And in so doing, we're communicating to them a value system that we seek the kingdom of God first. And there are some things that are not important to the kingdom and some things that are. And so no unilateral decision-making. We try to make all decisions in collaboration. But that also plays to the idea of empowerment. So our commitment is, and it has been from day one, okay, this wasn't as we got larger as a church. Uh, our commitment was that if you oversee a budget, a line item in the budget, then you, uh, you're empowered to make choices about your budget. You don't have to seek approval. You have approval. Matter of fact, you have responsibility to manage what God's given you and now has been allocated to you by the church. Spend it however you deem best to fulfill the vision in your ministry area as we are on mission together. But you should know this. You don't have to ask for approval. You will have accountability. And we say anybody can hold you accountable. So, you know, we're a larger church, and so if you're in the worship arts program, but Someone spends some money in the children's ministry, and you think, hmm, would Jesus do that? Would he spend money like that? You talk to them, because we want this whole climate of high accountability. Okay, Low control, high accountability is the way we operate with money at Clear Creek Community Church as well. So we want to work hard to, uh, to, to empower people. Now, another rule for us, uh, and by the way, I think these are things that are more important than just our actual systems that I'm about to share with you. Because everything, you know, the values drives everything, right? So um, part of this for us, too, is that no one overspends a budget. Ever. Ever. Zero-based budgets, everything's committed. So if I overspend my budget, even $10, we took that from someone else. And we did so without permission. So I can tell you, no one ever overspends their budget anymore at our church. Now, what does happen is uh, things come up, and they have to come back to our elders and say, um, this is what came up. This is why I'm not going to be able to make the budget and accomplish all the things that we talked about me doing with the money that God's given us. Uh, Can you reallocate? And we do that as we need to. So there is reallocation, but there is no overspending of a budget. Therefore, we don't... Uh, you know, ask forgiveness, we ask permission in that sense uh, for our budgeting. And then finally, unity. We'd say that we receive gifts uh, to go to the general fund so that we don't have tons and tons of different funds, okay, designated funds that just create, um, you know, kind of political parties within the church who are trying to fund their special interests. We have a general fund and we encourage everyone to give to that general fund. Now, we do have other funds that our elders have set aside in advance to say we believe these are critical funds for the sake of our mission. One of them is a building fund. We have a church planting fund. We have a camps fund. I'll explain that one. And we have a people in need fund. And we spend about $250,000 a year just helping people in our church who have financial stress or financial need or maybe they you know, have a reason that uh, we need to step in and help them. So there are five funds. We tell people that all the time. There are, if you want to give some money, you're going to give it to one of those five funds. And for your regular giving, uh, we really only receive funds to our general fund because we are one community of faith with one mission that God has given us as a community of faith. So those are the... Uh, 
the financial responsibility values. Now, what I'm about to walk you through is how we budget. And I'm going to do that pretty quickly. Um, but literally, this is cut and paste off the document that we just sent out to all of our ministry leaders because the end of this month is when we receive budget requests back. We're right in the fat middle of this process, okay? So I'm going to run pretty quickly through this so we have enough time at the end. So here's our budget calendar. I'm not kidding, cut and paste. Here we go. The first thing that happens is our elders set our budget priorities. Before anything else happens, our elders come together and say, if we have one unallocated dollar, where do we as elders believe that should go for the sake of the mission at this season in the life of our church? And that's the first thing that happens. So everything that happens after that happens with the knowledge that the elders believe these are the budget priorities in the coming year. They're not necessarily the church priorities, they're the budget priorities, because not all of our priorities cost money. Some of them do. So the next thing we do is we have a finance team that determines uh, the total budget. Give you a little structure. We are an elder overseeing staff-led, volunteer-operated congregation. Very intentional language for us. Our elders don't run things, they oversee. And our, chef, our staff leads, and we lead aggressively, uh, and our elders are watching, okay? We don't step outside the bounds. But our, uh, our church is really driven by volunteers. It's operated by volunteers. All three of those groups are involved in all the budgeting process. So for us, elders don't set the bottom line budget. We have a, a bunch of gifted people that we've set aside. They're gifted in the area of finance. They have a lot of experience in that area. They determine what our bottom line budget's going to be. And the driver for that oftentimes is just history and prayer. That's it. We get everybody to start praying about what it is that's going to be the bottom line. So this last year, again, it was 6.7 million. We're going to 7.1 million. And I got to tell you, I think that's too much. So I I wasn't in the room. I mean, the finance team determined that. And they determined it based on where we are as a congregation They had all been praying together, and they know the history of giving in our church uh, for the last 20 years. And they determine that. And whenever they determine that, then we as a staff live within uh, what they determine. So the next step for us is that ministry leaders submit their budget requests. So literally, um, I'd be happy just to send to you the packet of budget requests packet that we give to everyone. And that packet looks like this. Front page gives them instruction. Second page gives them this calendar that I'm sharing with you. After that, then we lead them to an exercise where they gather their ministry together, their ministry leaders, most of whom are volunteers, and envision what's going to happen in the next year. So they, they envision what they're going to do, and then they strategize how to accomplish that vision through activities. And those activities are listed on the page. These are the activities we're going to do that are going to help us reach this vision that we have for the coming year. And then we say, uh, what's that going to cost? And so then they fill out what's it going to cost. And then they add it up and they say, if this is our vision and these are the activities that are going to get that vision done, and this is what each of them is going to cost, this is our budget request. This is what we're asking for. And those are received uh, the last day of November in our budget cycle, and our budget cycle is an April 1 cycle. All right, and then the executive team then 
uh, allocates those total amounts. So we get all these budget requests in from multiple different ministry areas, and uh, executive team for us means our strategic elders. They're the ones who are taking what's been requested and trying to fit it into the bottom line that the finance team gave to us. Okay? Uh, our executive elders do not go back to the finance team and say, we need more money than that. We don't. We just trust that the Holy Spirit is going to use all that and get us all on the same page together. What we do is we allocate those budgets into the budget that we've been given. And then, uh, well, let me talk about allocation for a moment. Um, when we allocate budgets, it doesn't matter what size church you have, you really think in terms of three main buckets, and these buckets are facilities, personnel, and other. And you'll notice that the percentage difference of each of, the, of these is pretty significant. And here's why it is. Because not only the size, but also the season of your church determines how much of the allocation goes where. Uh, Clear Creek Community Church, as I said, we have uh, a lot of assets, and, and we're currently debt-free as a church. I'll talk more about debt in a moment. But uh, for us, we allocate at least 25% to facilities, and we've had as much as 35% to facilities. Uh, currently... We're setting aside 25% of what we receive for facilities because our vision uh, includes more facilities than we currently have. It's a $100 million facility vision. Um, I'll have to explain that in a bit. So then the, um, when you're brand new into a building, okay, your very first building, for instance, that's how it was for us. We were eight and a half years setting up and tearing down in schools before we moved into our first building. And when we moved into that first building, we were at about 35% and uh, tried to get that down lower as fast as we possibly could. Personnel, uh, a good number is 50%, I think, of your budget can go to personnel. Obviously, there are other circumstances that might change that number. We're at 52% today. We're still pushing to get to 50%, but there's been a, a season in our church where we were 60%. And if you're one of those churches that everything's just blowing up, I mean... You're having to go buy new chairs, you know, regularly because you just have so many more people coming. That might be a season that you would have 60% of your budget to personnel because how are you going to care for all the people that God's bringing to your church if you're not willing to add people to the team? Now, we don't hire people for roles that volunteers can do. You hire people who are going to equip people. That's what pastors do. We equip the saints for the work of ministry, the building up of the body of Christ. The only difference for that in our way of thinking <clears throat> excuse me, is that when a um, you know, weekly function requires as many as 20 hours a week for someone, uh, we would say that's no longer a volunteer role. <laughs> You know, that we need to compensate uh, that person. So when they get over 10%, we might begin to give a stipend of some kind. If it's at 20%, uh, probably half of our people are part-time, but we, we compensate them. Uh, still pushing to the idea, we don't hire volunteers, and sometimes that role can be divided up into a lot of different volunteer roles. Uh, we tell our staff people, even down to every, uh, you know, assistant, uh, every... Uh, associate, we, we have this long conversation with them. We tell them, if you're doing all of your job, you're not doing your job the way we want you to. We're going to give you so much work that you can't possibly get it done by yourself. And that's by design. Because your job is to build a team of people who are going to do your work. And so if we're looking at you and you didn't do any of your work, but you had somebody else do all your work, you're going to get the highest marks around here. 
as long as they love Jesus more and feel like they're in community because of the way that they're serving as they're getting everything done. Okay? So all of that drives part of how we view personnel and the personnel budget. And then the last thing you'll notice, I say others, other here. Hopefully you don't put ministry there. You think about the implication of that. Facilities has nothing to do with ministry. Personnel has nothing to do with ministry. You know, who wants to throw their money down the black hole of personnel to feed your kids? Seriously. This is all ministry. We've got to help everybody understand. This is all ministry. I tell our church, here's the statistic that nobody wants to hear, but I promise you it's true. In thriving, growing evangelical churches, when you add seats, when you built a building and you moved into that building, you probably reached in the next year to two years more people for Christ than your church had ever reached prior to that time. So that providing facilities becomes a catalyst for evangelism. And if it doesn't, then don't ever build any buildings because they're too dang expensive. But if it does, then let's stop kidding ourselves and start realizing that this, this is money well spent. This is good stewardship of what God has uh, provided for us. All right, we can talk more about that uh, in a bit. So I'm going back to the budget calendar. And uh, the next step in our budget calendar is that ministry leaders, excuse me, had hard eight for lunch. Man, it's really good, but not for lunch. Okay, ministry leaders adjust budget uh, to the allocated amount. In other words, they requested some money with their budget request. We allocated down to fit into our budget. Then we give it back to them and say, you wanted $30,000, you are going to get $18,000. Now, do your work again. Figure out how $18,000 is going to get as much done as you can do in the next year and then report that back to us. And then we summarize all that budget and we send it to the members of our church. Yes, sir. Can you just define ministry leaders real quick? Are you talking about deacons? I mean, especially for our church, like we have lay people who are basically like our mission leaders. So yes. Yeah. Uh, it is not uh, offices. It's, it's people who lead the ministries in your church. So for us, it's lay people also. And as we've gotten larger, it's more and more staff people. But um, in the earliest days of our church, it was all lay people, and none of them wanted to make these kinds of decisions. And they would oftentimes come to my office and say, this is what I'm thinking, but, you know, I don't know if it's... I said, you have to make that decision. But I, I just want you to look at it. I said, no, you want me to make that decision for you. And I want this to be a part of your sanctification. I want you to go to God. Seriously, I want you to go to God, and I want you to bring this before God's people with conviction and say, I believe this is what God would have us do. And I don't want them to do that because they're a staff person. I want them to do it because they're on mission, you know? Uh, so, yeah, I, if you will do this in the early stages of your church at 400, and you've got, you know, uh, half of the people who lead ministries are volunteers, that's a good culture, you know, in my view, anyway. All right, so we summarize this budget, and we send it to all the members. When I say summarize, uh, we don't give every line item in the budget because uh, what we want to do is communicate the budget in a meaningful way. You have to figure out what that means for you. But what, what we don't do, for instance, is we don't publish all the salaries in our church. Uh, but what we do is, is we say to everyone, if you have any question about anything we do, books are open, 
And you just need to ask the question. And if Mark Carden can't answer that question, our executive pastor can't answer that question for you in short order, he'll set up a meeting with you so he can give you the bigger picture to help you uh, understand what you need to understand. Uh, that does not mean if someone wants to know what I make that they can just say, Mark, send me an email and tell me what Bruce makes. Uh, we don't publicize salaries, and we give people a lot of reasons why we don't. Uh, and if your church does, that's fine. I'm not saying we're right. I'm just saying that's what we've chosen. Uh, but what we do is we open all of our expenditures in every other way. Um, and if someone really is bent because they have some brokenness in their past, what people make, we will give them ranges of what people make. Okay. Um, and then members ask questions prior to the members' meeting. Uh, we are a, an elder overseen church, but we do vote on our annual budget. And we've chosen to do that because we believe it's a way for people to affirm that they believe our mission is going in the right direction, and because they voted on it, then we say, okay, if we've affirmed together that we believe that God would have us do this, then what we're also saying is we're going to help fund this. We're going to be people who are giving to this. Uh, when we have these meetings for questions over the last 20 years, um, I think the, the largest crowd we've had at a meeting like this is three. About three people. And um, I used to think that was because of lack of interest. And now, true or not, I, I, I credit it to trust. I don't know. Um, but that's really true. Uh, those who, who come very seldom have any significant questions. Um, and then the members meeting, we vote to approve the budget. And we have had no votes in the budget, but very few in the history of our church. And we follow up with those people who do have a no vote because we believe that that probably means there's something uh, about which they're dissatisfied and they need to either be shepherded or we need to be corrected in some way. All right. I'll talk to you about spending a little bit. Again, this is the boardroom stuff. And so there are certain values and principles that drive how you and how we as a church spend money. Here's one of them for us. Um, ministry leaders are empowered to spend their budget. I mentioned that earlier. So we don't have approvals. We have accountability. Uh, we are therefore nimble and people feel empowered, um, but there is accountability for how they spend their money. Uh, someone, uh, excuse me, some requests are placed in elder reserve, which requires approval. Now, we learn this over time. Uh, what we realized is that sometimes when people have budgets that include big-ticket items, it could be a big event, it could be a capital item, they make a request for that, and if we approve that request, uh, sometimes they don't have the time, the energy, or the resources to pull off that big event, let's say. And we already put that money in their budget, and so we could go a whole year, and we can't get to that money unless we go and reallocate it out of their budget. And so, and of course, we don't even see that, you know, uh, so what we've learned to do, instead of kind of handcuffing ourselves and sticking some money where we can't get to it because it's never going to be used anyway, and at the end of the year, you know, we rebudget and the whole thing starts over, uh, what we've done is on big-ticket items like that, we put them in an elder reserve fund, and that reserve is what we're saying to those folks is we approve this, but we don't want to hold up this money if you actually don't do this or if you actually don't buy this. And so while you're free to... Spend your budget to do your ministry on this big ticket item. We want you to come back to us and say, we're really going to do this. And so can we have access to those resources to which our answer is going to be yes. 
at least it has been for 21 years. Not one time have we said no to that because that's not the purpose. The purpose is if it doesn't happen, then we have access to that, those resources for reallocation to do some, some things that we didn't anticipate. Okay, so uh, spending, elder discretion is set aside for generosity and discretionary spending. In the early days of our church, we had no elder discretion funds. And I suggest you not have elder discretionary funds in the earliest days of your church because it will feel to people like a slush fund. It will feel like people are going back in the back corner and they're just deciding to spend some money so that they don't have to tell us how they're going to spend that money. Uh, but after about 15 years of people living with us and knowing that we're going we're gonna to pinch it tight, uh, we developed this fund because we, we just said to people, you know, there's sometimes things happen uh, either in associated churches or even in our church, and we as an elder body want to be able to quickly uh, give a generous gift to someone, or we know of a reason why we need to reallocate some things in, in a certain ministry area, and we don't want it to change our budget. Uh, so we're going to ask that we can set aside some money for discretionary generosity. And so, for instance, uh, when there was a, um, a tornado in Oklahoma, uh, our church was able to help some guys there whose house was destroyed or the church was destroyed, whatever, um, by just simply, you know, writing a check, sending it their way, and then reporting to the church what we had done. So um, elder discretion, if your church is a little older and you have some trust. Then budget giving is for operational costs. Capital giving is for capital costs. That is a, a way we think about spending. Here's the truth. A lot of us are really entrepreneurial leaders. And as an entrepreneurial leader, here's what happens for us. We, we're like, we're just going to get it done. Whatever it takes, we're going to get it done. And so if I can't hire this guy, I'm going to go talk to Deep Pockets over here and ask him to kick in some money so we can hire this guy. And what you're really doing is you're going you're to paint yourself into an unsustainable kind of corner. And so if we're going to lead credibly over time, we have to be controlled by some principles that drive what we do. And so one of those for us is when we raise capital funds, that can only be spent on the capital cause for which we raise those funds. And we resist capital fundraising for any operational costs because it's not sustainable over time. So if you're going to do that, Again, I don't think it's evil. I think it's dangerous. So if you go raise some money to hire somebody, for instance, just tell that dude. Just tell him, listen, I raised enough money to hire you for eight months, and so I may fire you in eight months or lay you off because I don't have the money in our budget operationally to cover that. At least have the integrity to say that to the person so that they know this is a high-risk venture. And I know some, some people are more comfortable with that kind of, you know, risk. I have a little aversion to that kind of risk. And so we live by this principle of capital funds for, um, for capital, uh, increasing capital. Let me, let me say one other thing about that. I know your church is four to 800, but you, you probably are releasing church planners. And because I coach a lot of church planners, let me say this to, to you about um, how entrepreneurs think. Um, if a guy's planning a church, oftentimes if he came from a larger church, He'll bring to me an annual budget. And I have to tell you, I intentionally kind of go off on him. I'm like, dude, are you serious? You're going to bring me an annual budget? You don't know if you're going to be here in three months. What, what makes you think you need an annual budget? How about this? How about 
you set up some mile markers, and you got to get to here, and then you got to get to there, and then you put a dollar figure on what it's going to take to get to that first mile marker, and you run as hard as you can to get to that first mile marker. And then you hit that second mile marker. And how about this? After you establish a history, and it's going to take more than a year to establish that history, then you can begin to think, how are we going to live in budget cycles? Because you're not living in a cycle. You're living in a line. Okay? You need to launch, or if you launch, you need to be self-sustaining in some way. So make sure that you run hard in that way. But then, and this is where some real entrepreneurs get in real big trouble because they continue to function that way after the church is established. Then you begin to live in sustainable, accountable <coughs> systems. Those are two different ways of thinking. All right. Um, then the fi final one, excess cash. I'm just glad we even get to ever say that. Excess cash is, um, for us, it's when we have more money at the end of the year than we needed. And um, so God's people gave more than we spent. And so we allocate that then with recommendations from the elders to the finance team. So I kind of described our structure a little bit. Our finance team decides where that money goes. And our elders make recommendations. And we then entrust that uh, to the finance team. All right, that's how we do spending. Um, next is our generosity strategy. And I'm really doing you a favor here. I'm going to skip this. Because if you will go listen to that session I told you about with Brian Howard, you'll get a whole lot better stuff than I'm going to share with you right here. All right? So there you go. Um, I, I'm doing you a favor, really. So the next thing I want to talk to you about is then reporting. And again... You know, budgets, handling of money. This is all about stewardship. The commodity of leadership is trust. And so reporting has to do with trust. It has to do with building faith in people. Um, not just faith in you, faith in God. How he's using these resources to do great things in people's lives. But there's more than one audience for your reporting. Um, and if you're a finance person, you know uh, that, yeah, there are the people who give the money. But there's also institutions, financial institutions, that are vitally important for the reporting process. And I'm going to actually start with that. Uh, we give a lot of attention to reporting to our banks, and uh, I'm going to give you a little idea of what that means, but then tell you why it's important. Um, so we keep a current prospectus. Uh, our executive pastor, his name is Mark Carden, and uh, that's his email address, because if you ask me about stuff, I'm just going to send it to him anyway, because um, he, he developed most of this. Um, Mark Carden was a uh, partner with PricewaterhouseCooper for years before he left there to become our executive pastor, and he has developed such a great relationship with our banks, and he works hard at it. He keeps a very detailed and current prospectus that he sends to our banks at least on a quarterly basis, and he sits down with our bankers at least on a quarterly basis. It is a, an intense pursuit of relationship, and that way our bank knows all the details. I'm not exaggerating. I'm for 20 years, all the details of all of our finances. And we've done that to try to build trust with the bank. And the, to tell you why that's important, um, for our West Campus, for six years, we've been looking for land for our West Campus. And uh, we've made 12 offers, contract offers, Earnest money up, signed offers that were rejected. We offered a guy $4 million for 12 acres of land. He laughed. He's not interested. 
So um, about three weeks ago, a piece of property on a main thoroughfare in our community became available. It's 136 acres, and the price tag was $6 million on this piece of property, and it had been foreclosed on. It was bought for $12.5 million. Uh, that was paid down to $6.5 million, and uh, Wells Fargo, of course, you know, when the guy defaulted on that loan, they just wanted somebody else to take responsibility for that. In seven days, uh, we were prepared to buy that land. And uh, we don't have debt right now, but because of our relationship to our bank, we made one phone call. We have a $7 million line of credit with the bank so that we could buy that on the spot. And there were people in line, I'm not exaggerating, in line to buy that property. But the reason the bank chose us is not because we're a church. It's because that we could close within 60 to 90 days. And big pieces of property, you know, developers take a long time to do that kind of thing. So here's what I'm telling you that story. Because your first purchase of land or your first building, you need to start cultivating a relationship with the bank so that they know you inside and out and they're developing trust for you months and years before you buy your first piece of property or build your first building. Uh, this is a worthy investment of your time. That's the first area of reporting. The second one is just to our members. Um, when we report to our members, we do updates to our website weekly. So every week, people know what's come in, what's gone out. Our, our basic, basic financial statement looks something like this. If you go to our website and you can go to financial information, click on contribution update or the quarterly financial update or send any of your questions to M. Carden. That's uh, his email address. And so uh, you can get that at any time. And then uh, we also do quarterly updates to givers, so uh, we send what, what we've received overall and, of course, what we have uh, as a report that they have given, and then we, uh, we do an annual report, and we do that both electronically and we do paper copies of that, and that includes, you know, how many people came to faith in Jesus, how many churches were planted, how many church planters were trained, you know, all those things that we'd want to celebrate as a church. We really are guiding the hearts of people because you think about this. If you can train people in your church to value the things that matter most in the kingdom, uh, that's a great stride in their discipleship. This is what Jesus is doing in our heart, right? That's why he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Because he's telling these people, don't, don't chase after what you shall eat and what you shall drink, what you shall wear. You, you get this whole new value set. Well, when we report, what we report is a way of discipling people about what we should value as a community of faith. It's a very important thing beyond just simply building trust for people's giving. It is a, it's a discipling tool. All right, real briefly, just capital campaigns. Um, you know, we really, well, I'll tell you, we've only done five capital campaigns in 21 years, and I say only five because I have, you know, some friends who are uh, excellent pastors who've led their churches extremely well financially who would say they've never been out of a capital campaign. In other words, it's just one after the other. And the way they would describe that is they would say that people have pockets. I mean, they give to pockets. And what they pull out of their pocket to give for a building is a different pocket than what they pull out of to give to the general fund or to give to camps, which I didn't talk about how that's the most evangelistic thing that we do is camps, and that's why we help fund it. But people have different pockets. And so for them, they would say, you always have a building fund going on. We haven't chosen to do that. Um, We've chosen to only do them when we absolutely needed to. We've done five of them. 
we think it takes 18 months lead time to do a capital campaign. In that 18 months, we have two seasons of vision. We kick it off with a season of vision, and basically we're just casting a vision for where the church is going in the future and calling people to the kind of commitment that it's going to require for us to be that kind of church. And we're telling them in six months, you're going to hear some more vision stuff leading into a capital campaign. So we're trying to give them as much advance warning as they can because people who have money oftentimes need as much as six months to get access to their own money because of the investments that they've made with that money. So that's one of the reasons, but not the primary one. The primary one is it takes time for people to process what the vision of the church really is. And then uh, when we do capital campaigns, we do not hire consultants. I'm not saying you shouldn't. We have hired one uh, in our very first campaign. But what we've chosen to do is rather to hire uh, or add support for those campaigns. Uh, For us to do a capital campaign, it takes at least two full-time people to come alongside of us to keep us focused on that capital campaign. Why? Because we're all running down the road at 100 miles an hour already, right? So how are we going to do this capital campaign? Everything goes along with it. So what we've chosen to do is hire, like, you know, process engineers, people who know how to run projects, and they just come in and use their expertise and run this project while, um, you know, the rest of us are still doing what we do and the capital campaign. So that's what we've chosen to do. Uh, for capital campaigns, we do two to three years in a capital campaign. Uh, we prefer the two-year version. It's hard for people to stay focused for three years. And so two years, uh, historically, that means we can raise about uh, a number equal to our annual budget over and above our regular giving in a two-year campaign. Uh, that's what historically we've experienced. All right. Yep, that's it. So if you have questions, uh, Mark Carden is our executive pastor, and he's the guy uh, after today that you would want to uh, ask questions. At Clear Creek Community Church, you should know, uh, it's always first initial, last name. My name is Bruce Wesley. It's bwesley at clearcreek.org if you want to send me an email. This isn't my effort to avoid emails. Uh, but if you ask me anything that's got detailed financial stuff, I'm going to hit forward M. Carden, and then he's going to respond to you. So... Um, I talked fast, so we'd have this time. Yes, sir. Uh, on some of those funds, for example, the elder discretionary, the elder fund where you have the big project, does that, at the end of the year, does that money, money carry over? Or does it just go back? The discretionary funds? Yeah. Um, yeah. Sure. Thank you. Uh, the question is, does elder discretion carry over from year to year? No, it does not carry over. Uh, but what, excuse me, um, but we anticipate each year a portion of our budget would be elder discretion. And it would probably be the first thing to go, though, if for some reason there's just no room for it. Yeah, I'll get you next, Alan. When you, uh, when you give your ministry leaders the budget, how long of a time period do you give to them to give that back? 30 days. 30 days. Yes. We did this this last week. So we had an all-staff meeting. Our executive pastor led the whole team. It's a team, you know, a room about this size. It's many people. Uh, this is what your budget process looks like. Be sure to include people. You have 30 days. And, of course, you know, he's uh, the executive pastor. He said, and so don't let that be a day late. You get that to me by, you know, the last day of November. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Alan, you're next. Yeah, I'd love to hear you talk about staff compensation. I mean, I think a lot of our churches are transitioning to adding more staff members, and we're thinking through things like who do we offer benefits to, even if they're a full-time salary, yeah. uh, you know, part-time versus full-time folks, 
maybe just talk a little bit about your philosophy there? Okay, I'm going to talk philosophy. I'm not going to talk legality because there are some legal issues with the question he just asked about our staffing, who's full-time, who's part-time, who gets benefits, who doesn't get benefits, you know, that kind of thing. So, uh, for instance, you know, if a person works, I think it's, y'all can help me, more than 30 hours, and you offer full-time benefits to people at their level, then you have to give them full-time benefits. Uh, I think that number's 30 hours, but again, this is not a legal statement, okay? Um, so our philosophy is that... Uh, Pastors are equippers, that um, if someone is added to our staff, their role is to equip people and to, you know, add as many people as they can to the cadre of followers of Jesus who are doing the ministry in this church. So that, that's a driver for us. For us, um, we at the pastoral level only hire lifers. So if someone says, and, and I'll tell you why it's an important moment, uh, to the amount of money we pay, okay? Uh, if someone's interested in being a pastor and they say, you know, I would love to come do this and, you know, then five years later going to do something else, we say, no thanks. You're not a bad person. We just, we only hire people who, as far as they know, can be here for life at the level of a pastor in our church. And, you know, you should know, I, I say to everybody, that doesn't mean... You know, I know God's will for the future. I don't. If God leads them to go do something else, that's fine. But if they already know they're going to go do something else, it's not fine. Don't, don't come here. Uh, now, here's why that matters. Because I want to pay people in a way that money is never the issue for why they stay or why they go. If we overpay people, it could be the reason they stay. You can literally overpay people. If you underpay people, it could be the reason they go. So it does. It, it is this, you know, tightrope that we walk, right? And uh, so we want to make sure that the um, the way the living that people make within our church in general influences that. Uh, we we try to receive every piece of data we can from the national surveys, you know, leadership network surveys and that kind of stuff. That's just a data point, though. Um, where a person is in their life, how much experience they've had in ministry. Yeah, uh, you know, I know a lot of guys. They say, "Well, if they're all pastors, then pay them all the same thing." And uh, I don't do that. We um, you know, depends on how old they are, how long they've been in ministry, you know, all that kind of stuff uh, influences. Now, I will say that if a person's in a pastoral level, I mean, there, it's a very small difference between who makes this and who makes that. You know, uh, at the at the pastoral level, uh, one of the things that we have a great advantage for in the local church is that uh, there are a lot of moms who want to work some but want to be home with their kids, and we can give them flexible schedules, and we can offer them a great place to work, and many of them want to serve God in the church in their work. And so we have tons of moms who, um, who work part-time in our church. And what we have to fight with that is uh, n for them to not overwork because, you know, if, if people overwork, first of all, legally, they can't overwork. They have to report to you if they worked more than you agreed to if they're a part-time person. And, uh, you know, what they'll say, well, I was volunteering those hours. Well, you can say that, but I don't know if the IRS is going to buy that, you know. Or, you know. So uh, you have to tell us if you can work more, you said. You know. What we're also doing, though, is we're protecting their families because, you know, again, you can lose somebody who's a really good employee if you allow them to overwork and you don't help them manage their own life in that regard. So uh, we have, you know, full-time people, part-time people. Our, um, man, I don't know how else to talk about this. I don't like top level, but 
our top level guys have a different uh, set of benefits than others. And uh, you have to treat those as categories. Uh, so, in other words, people in a certain category can't have different benefits. They have to have the same benefits. And uh, whoever the experts in HR in here can maybe give you more detail about that. It's not me. Um, but so when someone works maybe more than 10 hours or so, we begin to think about, okay, do we need to add to that volunteer team or are we going to hire a special ability and pay them specifically for that special ability for X amount of hours? And there are certain things that we do that with. For instance, you know, I mean, not everybody can play guitar. Not everybody can sing well. So uh, there are special abilities that don't have to do with how many hours people work. It has to do with the contribution that they're making to the church. And so we try to keep that in consideration. You want to guide me any more than well, that? No, I want to give the other guys a chance. Okay. Yes, sir. We're not a good example in that. Um, okay. Thank you for giving me out on that. Excess cash. Uh, you said you don't have debt right now. You've had it in the past. Uh, one of the, our foundational priorities for our church is to send as much money out the door as we can for missions, church planning, et cetera. Um, but at some point, Yes. I'm going to run a real risk of offending a lot of people here, okay? When young church planners tell me, we're going to give 50% of everything God gives us away, I say, it's been nice knowing you. Because uh, I've never seen that work for somebody. If they set a number, and they're just going to live by that number, because the fact is, different seasons of the church require us to behave differently. So, in the same way that a teenager might want to, like one of my kids, she, she got on this real generous kick, right, when she was off at college, and she's calling home and telling she's going to give it, all this stuff away. And I'm saying, hold the phone. That's not your stuff. I bought all that stuff. Don't give my stuff away that I'm letting you borrow, right? And, and, and there's a sense in which when you're early in the game, uh, it's kind of like when I was saying, you know, an annual budget, that sounds really good. You don't need an annual budget. You need mile markers and running hard at those mile markers. So I'm not saying the value is bad that you want to give half of everything away. I'm saying that to make that a hard and fast rule may be um, insensitive to the season that a person's in until they get to the place that the church is more mature and the basic needs of how the church functions every day can, you know, uh, th those needs can be met. So in our case, for instance... Here's what I teach our people and believe, that um, our first goal is not how much we can give away, it's how healthy can we be as a church. Because over time, if our church is really healthy, we will give away more and more and more money. So if my church has a budget of a million dollars and I give half of it away, do the math on that. If my church has a budget of $7 million and I give 20% away, do the money on that. I'm not giving half of it away. I only gave 20% away, but I gave more money away because I was focused on the church thriving. Now, 
We, I know we got to check our heart, and we got to check our heart in community to make sure we're not building our own kingdom, and it's not about being big. I promise you, clear, well, I promise you, we're not about being big. My favorite church, 500. If I got to choose where I pastor, I would pastor a church at 500 because there's enough people to do what you need to do, enough money to meet the needs that we have, and I can know people. I don't know more people than I do know on any given Sunday morning. I hate that. But we didn't get to choose that, right? So we just say, Jesus, help me be faithful today, whatever you've given me. And that's where we are. So anyway, I, I, I don't even know what the question was now. <laughs> I apologize. Would you redirect me? Okay. Um, I was around it, wasn't I? Because... Uh, <laughs> Because my, my goal in saying that is that we can pay down debt so we can continue to reach people and give money away. So it's not an either or, it's a both and. And we ought to give away money, but we ought to pay down debt if it's going to position us to reach more people. So it's a both and. And I'm sorry, I don't have a, a principle for that. I just think it's a both and. Yeah. Oh, Jim. Sweet. <laughs> um, two, two questions, if that's possible, and they're unrelated. Okay. Um, I've heard twice now the low control, high accountability thing. Mm-hmm. Matt, uh, they, uh, there. How is that not perceived as control? What is that? What's that? Okay. I'd like to know the distinction. Yeah, for us, the distinction is uh, control on the front end. So getting approvals feels like control, okay. but for us. We're going to talk to you about how you spent your money, not whether you can spend your money. Okay. okay? And so what we'll do then is we'll assess, okay, uh, how come you spent so much on celebrating your volunteers? Look at that. You, you spent this much money on celebrating your volunteers, but this much money on developing them. Wouldn't it have been wiser to develop them? I promise you they'd appreciate that more than having some pizza, yeah. you know? Yeah, that's good. Yeah. And then the other one is um, when you send off... Uh, requests for ministry leaders to submit their budget. Which ministry leaders? Can you give me some categories? So I'm not assuming kids, I'm assuming worship, what else? Right. Anybody who gets a line item in the budget. So think of that in terms of line items, and that's exactly how we think about it. uh, If it's a line item in the budget, then we put a name beside it. And by the way, if if they have their name on that sheet, they give at least 10% of their household income. At least. Yes. We do check that, and we hold that accountable, too. By, I mean, really accountable. Like, if I told you how we do that, it would be very uncomfortable. Okay, I'll tell you. Excuse me? That's for everyone who manages a budget. That's for our small group leaders, too. So even with small group leaders, you know, accountability is, first of all, you should know, this took years to develop. Don't go get fired over this. All right? So with years of time, what we've developed is people know Part of their commitment is the first tenth at least goes to God, okay? Because we're not going to do more under law than under grace, so we're going to give at least that. And uh, so they meet three to four times a year with a person overseas, and we call that person a group guide. And at least one of those conversations just goes down the expectations of a person who's a disciple maker in our church. And so we actually show them the number. This is what our records show you've given. Is that a representation of at least 10% of, of what you give? And uh, so it's pretty upfront accountability. But, you know, when we transition to that, 
We took a year and a half to transition to that, and we believe it takes about two years for a person to be equipped to be a disciple maker, and that's a piece, only one piece, but it's one piece of their development. So did I answer your question, Jim? Oh, no, second. Um, so who, what ministry leaders are submitting budgets? Okay. So anyone that has a line item. Anyone who has a line item. So they could be a volunteer okay. or they could be a staff person. Okay. Uh, if they get a line item, what we're saying is we're entrusting God's people and God's money to you. So you're fully committed. You're on board with us. Doesn't matter if you're paid or not. But they're going to complete their budget with their team and submit it to us. And they have total access to what they receive as a result of their budget request. Uh, just responsibility, fiscal responsibility. Yeah, transparency, and you know we we have a demonstrated fiscal responsibility. Those those things. Yeah. Okay. I try to circle back around there. Camps camps are for us uh, one of the most evangelistic things we do. So, and therefore, uh, we think we need to help fund camps for the number of st children and students whose families have a hard time funding them going to camp. We don't want money to keep a kid from going to camp because we get five days to unplug them from their phone and press the gospel into them. So we set aside money just for that. Is there a budget or is it Outside the budget. We highlight them during what we call the first gift of Jesus season, which is right now, from now through Christmas. But we try to teach people, you can give to first gifts any time in the year, but we highlight that during this season. Uh, on the 23rd of November, I'm going to do Church Planting Sunday. And so we'll emphasize giving to church planting. We'll parade every church planter we have across in front of people and tell stories of, you know, life change because of church plants. And we'll do the same thing on a Sunday with camps and the same thing with people in need. And uh, so we're really emphasizing that those funds during this season, but people can give any time during the year. So we make mention during the year, but this is the emphasis season. All right, it's, uh, we're over, and I apologize. I got all excited about talking. So uh, yeah, you're kind. Let me pray for us. Let me pray for us. So if you feel comfortable doing this, I would invite you to do this with me. When I hold up my hands like this sometimes and pray, I just say, God, this is your church. It's not my church. Everything this church has, every ounce of influence this church has, all the people in this church, they're your people, they're not my people. But you've given me responsibility for them. Help me be trustworthy. It's required of a steward that he be found trustworthy. May you be trustworthy. God bless.